Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Food to Go, which this week is brought to you by Centric Software. As ever, I'm joined by my co-host Joshua Minchin, Assistant Editor of New Food. Josh, how are you today? I'm not too bad, thank you, Beth. It's Friday morning. We're recording on a Friday morning, which is always nice. Sun's shining. Uh, yeah, in quite in quite high spirits today. I've had my morning coffee, which was which was lovely. We'll discuss coffee a bit later, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> As we always do, and it is relevant to today's topic. So, so yeah, I'm in a, I'm in a very nice mood, Beth. How about you? Yeah, very good. You, you, we're going to give the wrong impression that we are absolute coffee addicts, which actually, to be honest, I don't think that's addicts. the wrong impression at all. I think that's entirely accurate. I think we are being too stereotypical, though, here. We're writers obsessed with coffee. <laughs> Yeah, it is a little bit Hollywood, isn't it? Like, I rest assured, listeners, I wasn't up at my desk sort of straining at my laptop screen with my shirt sleeves rolled up with a cup of coffee in front of me last night. That that, that doesn't happen on a day to day. But I do love a cup of coffee, as does Beth. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was last night. I was there, sleeves rolled up, coffee, <laughs> typing away. <laughs> Waiting for your source at uh, Wall Street to get back to you. <laughs> Brilliant. Should we get on with it? I think we should get cracking, yeah. Today, we are treating ourselves to a little bit of luxury as we examine the premium products market and ask why consumers continue to buy luxury despite times getting harder for many over the past 18 months. That's absolutely right, Beth. So the top 100 luxury product companies generated just over $280 billion of revenue last year, which is a number that my brain struggles to understand. Um, That's up 8.5% on the previous year. And Bain & Co are predicting that that sector will grow a further 15% next year too. So although it's been tough for many of us over the past 18 months and perhaps incomes have fluctuated and wallets have had to be tightened, People are still buying luxury. They're still treating themselves. Yeah, they are. I mean, what what is luxury though? And do you ever buy premium products? Yeah, I do. I think luxury is something that is different from what's on what the majority of the market can offer. And um, obviously, we'll discuss this with our guests in a lot more detail coming up. But I do think that it has to offer something a little bit different to what's there already. It has to offer an experience, a feel, an emotion. All of those sort of abstract words that marketing companies use all the time, but I do think they ring true <laughs> when it comes to luxury. I think it's something that's different. Um, I do buy luxury, yes. Not day to day. I buy 20 pence penne and I do buy luxury coffee. That is my one of my... Uh, oh, yeah. My advice is, yeah, I, I, a coffee convert now, I must admit. I'm well into my beans and my uh, degrees of roast, etc. And And as you'll hear later on the podcast, whiskey. I do buy luxury whiskey. What about you? Oh, well, I have to say, I can't name any names. You know, that's my prog- you know prerogative as a judge. I was a judge for Product of the Year. Yes, recently. of course. Um, and I did try some, what I can say is I did try some coffee products. And I will say that now I've gone to the, you know, proper like bean to cup. I have, oh, there's, there's no going back. It just doesn't compare. No, it's not. I'm totally, I'm totally with you there on the premium coffee category. Definitely, I don't know. I, I mean, I think, I think I do like a premium tonic. Actually, yeah, yeah. I am quite partial to a premium tonic. You know, I, again, I won't name any names because I'm sure there's lots of brands out there, but I do have a favourite. <laughs> <laughs> 
I've got worse in, in the last few years as well. I mean, I remember at university, I would like would be on the seven p beans and like nothing that wasn't in the value range. And now I'm going shopping. I think, oh, should I just get the uh, the premium biscuits? Yeah, yeah, we deserve it this week. It's been a tough week. I think my university itself will be shuddering in horror with the amount of luxury products that I buy. But there is that aspect of buying less and buying better. Yeah, yeah, there is. And when you're when you're a student, you know, you've got you've got different priorities. You're probably spending more on a night out, aren't you? No comment, <laughs> but yes, it. probably, probably. <laughs> okay, so you in, did a couple of interviews, Josh, didn't you? I did, yes. First up, I spoke to Cara, who is marketing director of International Spirits Manufacturer in the house, to find out a little bit more about luxury products within the spirits sector, and in particular, whiskey, which I'm sure regulators know is one of my favourite drinks in the world. So it wasn't a very difficult interview for me to conduct. Ooh, let's, let's give a listen. Hey, Cara, thank you so much for joining me today. Delighted to be joined by Cara Chambers from Inverhouse Distilleries. The first question I wanted to ask you was, what makes a product premium? Yeah, I think that's a really good question because a lot of that is actually in the consumer's mind as to what makes a product premium. And it isn't just price, although a higher price point is a kind of really easy way to tell that something's positioning itself as premium. But consumers are very clever, so they know if they're paying a higher price, they're going to expect something that goes along with that. So it's about quality, authenticity, maybe design, a, a great story. Um, certainly these days, kind of sustainability credentials. There are a lot of things that kind of go in the basket to make up what something is, makes it premium. And like I say, in the end, really consumers will decide whether you really are premium rather than just expensive which i think is a different thing absolutely and actually you, you led me on to my, to my next question perfectly because i was going to ask is it a kind of chicken and egg situation does does price dictate whether a product is premium or does it have to sort of prove its credentials as a premium product before you can stick the higher price tag on it i, I yeah again i think that's that's it is that chicken and egg I think a brand who just says, oh, look at me, I'm now going to be premium and stick the high price on, will get found out very quickly. And I would say that a premium product has to really have that story behind it. So I'll, I'll give you a good example of one of our products, so Karoon Gin, which is our handcrafted small batch gin. You know, it's positioned up in the high £20 price mark for a bottle of gin, so about £28 but it is handcrafted, it's in small batches, it's got the provenance of being made in a, in a whiskey distillery, we can tell the story of the botanicals, and all that story is there to back that up. So there is a reason why that product is £28 rather than a regular bottle of gin at £14 or £15. And if you don't have that and you can't back up your premium price with a story and a rationale, and then the delivery of the product, does it really taste great? Does it really deliver on what people are looking for? So it's the functional and emotional part of it. Do, do I buy into it? Is there a story? Is it worth it? Does it look great? And then does it taste great? Is it really worth the price difference? So, yeah, absolutely. Obviously, it has to taste good. <laughs> but you mentioned the, sort of the knowledge about the botanicals, and that, that prompts me to ask this question. Do you think that's the central part of a premium product is, is traceability, knowing how it was made, knowing the story behind the product rather than, say, a more budget option, which, which might not have that kind of information behind it? 
Yeah, I think certainly in our industry, in premium spirits, that that's really important. So if you look at the difference between a very large blended whiskey, which will be a, a great product, it's very you know, sort of standardized, it will always taste the same, it's, you know, millions and millions of bottles versus a single malt whiskey, which will be much smaller scale from a much smaller distillery. And you can literally go and visit. You could go and visit any one of our distilleries, Old Pulteney, Balblair, you can literally see where it's made, you can understand and talk to our distillery manager, uh, they'll tell you about, you know, where our malt comes from. And that's just, it's just a very different thing. And I think people understand that now. It's not that one is good and one is bad. It's just that they're very different. And that's why you've got that different price point. So, you know, somebody wants a bottle of, you know, blended whiskey that, that they're going to drink sort of on a weekly basis. That's great. It costs 15, 20 pounds. If you're wanting something really special, that's a gift. And that has a story and that traceability and that kind of real kind of specialness then people are prepared to pay more for that. And it's, it's a very different proposition and both have their place. Do you see those budget, and we'll take whiskey as an example, those budget blends, yeah. do you see those as competitors or is it a completely different sector entirely? I, I think that most whiskey drinkers will probably have a portfolio and they have different brands and different products for different occasions. So if you love to have a whiskey and Coke on a sunny day, you're probably going to buy a bottle of blended whiskey and you're going to pay you know, a lower price for it because you're using it in a different way. But if you're enjoying, you know, a, a malt at the end of a meal or you're buying a gift, you know, your your dad or your granddad or you're sharing something on a special occasion, you're going to pay a very different price point. And I think people understand and have that portfolio of different drinks for different occasions and, and one is not good or bad. So, no, I don't see them really as competitors. I see us as all kind of creating lots of occasions for our product and, and keep people in, you know, drinking whiskey for lots of different occasions. So I think it's all good if, if blends are developing and growing and different kinds of blended whiskey from different markets, like American whiskey, for example, and bourbon, it, it's all good for the category. What you've done there, Cara, is describe, is describe me because I do have quite the portfolio <laughs> yeah. of whiskey and I'm constantly nagged by my other half to, uh, Fin it out because it's taking far too much space in our living room. Yeah, absolutely. So, and it's the uh, same with gin. People love having all the different brands and all the different things. Absolutely. Obviously, you mentioned some of the names that, that you're famous for. And if anybody's not visited Balblad Distillery, I would heartily recommend it because I've been in it. It's a beautiful part of the world it, and a lovely, a lovely place. Obviously, you make some some premium some premium expressions, and then you've got what I would call the super premium expressions. So mm-hmm. the 25, 30, 40 year olds, they do come with a price tag as they should for 40 years of, of hard work mm. what does the cute consumer expect though when they're paying that money what kind of packaging do they expect what kind of taste do they expect mm. service yeah it's, it's a very different proposition isn't it when you're you're buying something that's been matured for 40 years there literally may well be a few hundred bottles ever you know we we do not have in our warehouses you know, multiple casks of 40 year old whiskey. We have to decide very carefully when to release those because there's so little of it. And I think therefore people do understand that they're buying something that is very rare. Like you say, has had a huge amount of work gone into it. And therefore we want to make it look amazing for them. So we spend a lot of time developing amazing packaging for these things. So we will want it to be in the kind of display case that people could you know, put on their shelves in their house. Uh, they want to be proud of that. They want to be able to see it. They may even want to keep 
that as, a, as an heirloom or something that they maybe aren't even going to drink. You know, lots of people buy products at that age for, to collect, maybe to save for a very special occasion. I was thinking about this when I prepared for our discussion, Josh, and, and my, uh, my husband opened a very rare bottle of Ardbeg. Uh, when our children were born uh, uh, 16 years ago, we had twins and, you know, we would never have opened that on a regular occasion, but we opened it for that occasion because it really meant something. And and I think it's that whole occasion and therefore people want it to look great, be something they can admire. And if they're going to drink it, that it just feels amazing every time you pick up, you know, the crystal decanter rather than normal bottle that you might have your special glass you know that you feel very proud sort of you know putting it back in the box and and um, yeah so I think it's it's a whole different thing than just your regular drink on a weekly basis absolutely and there's a couple of bottles that I've got that I'm looking at right now that I've been grappling with for the last few months because I'm desperate to try them but at the same time I don't want to open it just yet exactly Uh, yeah yeah Do you think, and this has always been my suspicion as a whiskey drinker, but it applies to all spirits. Do you think packaging can sometimes make a, shall we call, normal product premium? Do you think that that good packaging can can raise that threshold and, and, and therefore raise the price point? I think that's interesting because I think the packaging in that case, if you were just changing the packaging, then I think it would have to be in a way that really benefits the consumer. So is it something that means that it's, more collectible or it's something you're going to keep so in this era of sustainability you know does that mean that that's a bottle you're going to keep so I've noticed talk about one of our competitors brands Harris Gin recently have done an amazing stone bottle Mm. uh, for the Harris Gin but people are going to keep that and then probably refill it so I think you know that price point goes up there but they've created something very different so I think for for me you can't just add the packaging and expect people to go oh lovely I'll pay more for some fancy packaging it's got to be something that people go and I will keep that and I love that or it's more functional or it's more displayable but I think you probably can't really just take a standard product and just give it fancier packaging and expect people not to kind of think well I'm just going to pay more for that packaging aren't I unless that packaging is giving you some real benefit. And it's an area we're all looking at now, particularly in terms of sustainability, which is you don't really want to be just adding fancy packaging for the sake of it. And certainly we're looking at all our brands and our sustainability credentials. And that accounts even when we're going up to the really high end stuff that, you know, we need to make sure that what we're making is still sustainable, recyclable, um, and we're not just kind of creating packaging just, just for the sake of it. Absolutely. It is, it is a major concern for, for a lot of brands mm-hmm. at the moment. I do think you're right. I think you see consumers will see, see for it quite quickly if the product mm-hmm. behind it isn't there. I wanted to ask you, just before I let you go, I wanted to ask you about, about Bow Blair. Yeah. I visited a couple of years ago. I absolutely loved it. Got the chance to bottle my own bottle from yeah. the cask. It was a brilliant experience. But Bow Blair's not always been a premium brand. Do correct me if I'm wrong. You've, I think Inverhouse has transitioned Bow Blair in, in recent years to that premium end of the market. Is, am I correct in saying that? Yes, that's absolutely right. So I think what the business found a few years ago with Bal Blair, Bal Blair had a, a model of only ever releasing vintages. So we, we selected different vintages every year to release. Uh, and they were incredible quality whiskies, but it was a very different model to other brands. So it was very hard to kind of almost price match and peg them in the market as to where they should be. 
And, and we also consistently got such amazing reviews for our liquids. We began to realize we were probably undervaluing our own liquids because, you know, the, the whiskey is absolutely amazing. And like you say, the place has the full pack, amazing distillery with amazing people who take painstaking care of, of what they were doing. In a way, we, we realized we were underselling it. And so a bit like you said, we, we actually didn't just change the packaging to reposition it. We actually re- recreated the range. So we moved from just releasing a, a vintage every year to actually having a full range from the 12 year old right up to the 25 year old. And now we're working on what might come beyond that. And, and certainly in those higher ages in the future. And we completely reinvented uh, the packaging and the whole kind of proposition around the brand. So uh, absolutely, we've certainly moved it up into that super premium. And also because it's a very small distillery and it is always going to be restricted in terms of its stock, and that's one of the key things with malt whiskey is, this is always going to be rare as well. This is not going to be, you know, a million cases, the size of a brand like McAllen, it's always going to be, you know, quite boutique and quite rare. So, So yeah, we had that balance of, sort of rarity and and admit and try to sort of grow the brand at the same time and therefore you have to have this balance of actually you need the value because we don't really have the volume and therefore you've got to create something that really matches that proposition so but for me that was about was about creating the right product range as well as the packaging back to that earlier conversation about you can't just change the packaging Absolutely. And, and, and the last thing I want to ask you on this is how do you go about transitioning the brand in consumers' minds? I mean, again, do correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is for a lot of Western consumers, Balblair is either probably quite unknown because it is a small distillery or known yeah. for going into other blends. How do you go about convincing other consumers that this is a premium product? We've moved on. This is where we are now. You need to buy our whiskey. Yeah, it, I would say slowly and and you know, with transparency and intelligence, because I am very wary that you don't just suddenly go, da-da, everybody look at us, we're really shiny and new and you need to love us and we're really premium. We have to literally go market by market with our brand ambassadors and with our products. And before the pandemic, we literally were, you know, going to Asia, going to the US. We were going around all the kind of specialist retailers, the journalists, and we have to literally go and say, hey, everybody, come and come and look at us again. Come and try the liquids and that's the, to come and try this whiskey and see how amazing it is. Come and understand our distillery and see how amazing it is. Come and see what we do differently, how we take longer with our process, build that story. And we have to do that with real credibility and, and we have to invite people to come and change their view of us. And yes, we're doing it almost like quite hand to hand. And if you like, rather, we don't have big advertising budgets. So we have to go and literally talk to consumers and run tastings and do it the old hard way and and yeah as we go out to our kind of markets in asia you know we're out trying to kind of introduce the brand educate people get them to try it and uh, work with our distributors to really get them to understand this is maybe something a bit different you know sort of a bit different some of the bigger more established kind of premium whiskies for people who are looking for something a little bit new and interesting and yeah, so it's, it's, you've got to do it slowly, I think, because you've got to earn people's trust and credibility to say, okay, I see what you're telling me. And I can see that your product matches what you're saying. And for us, this is very much a kind of let's, let's build this slowly and with credibility and um, yeah, and, and get people to kind of come to us and, and sort of fall in love with the brand. 
I think you're absolutely right. And the risky sort of drinking community sometimes needs quite a lot of convincers to try something new. Yeah. So I, I don't doubt that was quite a difficult process. It was, yeah. And we're still we're still there. So I, I always say with Balblair, we're launching, we're still launching. It's a brand that's been around for, you know, nearly 250 years, but we're kind of still launching. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we just need to keep acting like we're new to people because you're right, we're a, we're a relatively small brand in the, in the context of malt whiskey. So we keep need to start that conversation all the time, like it's a new conversation that people don't know about us. So yeah, absolutely. With uh, humility, I think is 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 key to saying, you know, we're here, we're new, we believe we're great. We'd love you to come and find out about us. Absolutely, and and, and Carl, just to finish off with, I think there's been a real shift, I and mean, I could be wrong, but I think there's been a real shift towards premium products, especially since mm. the onset of the pandemic. I think people are drinking at home; they are happy to spend a bit more money on something special to yeah. sort of maybe just to cheer themselves up. In the light of that, do you think more brands will attempt to go on a similar chain to Balblair? Do you think more brands that are perhaps considered at the lower end of the market will try to reposition themselves as premium brands going forward? I, I think inevitably, because you know everybody can look at the data and see that's really where the growth is in the market. And, and it's because of this consumer trend of drinking less, but drinking better. And I think a lot of people have, and, and it's not just sort of older drinkers, I think younger drinkers now are much more interested in well, if I'm going to have a drink and I'm going to spend my money, I want to make sure I'm buying something really cool and interesting and different. And I'm going to drink a bit less, but I'm having a really quality experience. So I think inevitably brands will want to have a bit of that. And however, I think for existing brands, it is it is really quite tough to make that transition because there are so many new brands coming up to the market, you know, boutique distilleries, you know, startups, you know, all over the world in terms of, you know, new spirits, new gins, new whiskies. So for an existing brand, I think it's that thing of, yes, to put yourself into premium, you're going to have to create something new. You're going to have to look at your packaging, look at your whole proposition, look at how you're actually adding some value, not just do it through a kind of maybe a marketing communication or a packaging communication. So I think, yes, I think inevitably people want to kind of take a bit more of that, but it's but it's hugely competitive. And, and that's where most people are launching themselves. If they're new, they're going into that premium and super premium sector rather than the rather than the standard where it's it's so well contested by, you know, the big brands we've all kind of, you know, known and loved for a long time, like the Gordons, the Bells, the famous Krauses, etc. So yeah, there, there's quite quite different playing fields. Cara, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. No, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much. Speak to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Okay, so really interesting interview there, Josh. Yeah, you can tell that you like whiskey. <laughs> yeah, I, I did disguise it very well, did I? <laughs> okay, so she made some really interesting points about you know higher price is an easier way to position yourself as a premium product but ultimately it's about so much more than that and the consumers will actually decide whether you're you're premium or not I remember years ago you know someone saying to me about well if it's more expensive it's probably going to be better and me kind of being like really because you know I, I don't find that the case and I don't know whether that's sort of back then I, I kind of I mean, I was very young, but I sort of was questioned it, but sort of was like, okay, yeah, maybe. But I don't know if there's something that has changed. Like the consumer has become more of a, I was going to say dictator. That's not, not the right word. <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly or, what you mean. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I just think that's, 
that's interesting. What do you think? Do you think the consumer now has more power? Absolutely. And I think a, a phrase that, that Cara mentioned, which really rang true at the time and rings true today is, you're not premium, you're expensive. And that did make me smile because I do think a lot of manufacturers stick a higher price label on a product and go, there you go, it's premium. Mm. I think consumers will see through you quite quickly if you do that, to be honest with you. It might work. They might buy your product once, maybe even twice. But I think after a while, people will just go, do you know what? This doesn't taste any better or doesn't feel any better. It's just more expensive. I mean, I've got plenty of examples of that where I've bought something and gone, actually, it was no better than the, the, the product's sort of a couple of rungs down the, the price ladder. Oh, absolutely. So I do think there's, there's a real difference between being premium, evoking those emotions, making people feel good about what they're consuming and, and just being expensive. I don't know if it's just me, but I do sometimes, t- you know, flip the, the jar or whatever it's in around and compare the ingredients to see if there's like kind of cheaper or anything nasty that goes into a product if it is less expensive and sometimes it's the case sometimes it's not so it is sometimes interesting to do an ingredients comparison yeah absolutely and I also look at where it's been made so the origin Mm. it's a bit of a different point but I was told once upon a time by uh, a certain manufacturer that actually you can always tell where a white label sort of value product originates from by the location so if it's a very prominent location that you know say a spirits manufacturer is based they might say or made in such and such a town and you, and you know that actually even though it's got a white label stuck on it it's uh it's a premium product underneath the packaging so it just goes to show that it's not just about how you dress it up it has to be what's inside the bottle or what's inside the chocolate bar or what's inside the bag of coffee you can't just put some nice packaging around it stick up expensive label on it and say there you go there's a premium product Mm, mm, yeah absolutely and um, also at one point of that car turned into a robot did you notice <laughs> i did yes <laughs> we had to use a slightly different platform because we were having some technical difficulties on the morning so the connection wasn't always brilliant but um, i can assure you Cara did pass the turing test and is not a robot <laughs> And now it's time to hear from our sponsor of this podcast, Centric Software, which has plenty of experience in dealing with luxury food and beverage manufacturers. I'm delighted to be joined by Christoph Thurry, Senior Vice President of Sales, Global New Markets and EMEAR at Centric Software. Christoph, how are you today? Hey, not too bad, not too bad, Josh. Thank you for having me here. Not at all. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, perhaps... uh, we can start by asking, what, what are the major trends, would you say, that are shaping the, the industry right now? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, many things have changed over the past two years, as you can imagine. But um, I think the, the major trends we are seeing in the industry right now are the, the three following ones. One of them has to do with traceability. I think everyone wants to know what they have on their plate in details, where that comes from, preferably if it comes from a nearby location, the local one. And the second thing has to do with really the emergence of what I would call, uh, uh, for the lack of a better, an eco-responsible consciousness. I think that was um, a fad initially, but th- that has become quite uh, quite a significant trend now. Everyone is interested in making sure that we are becoming more sustainable and that you know instead of eating meat, we can go to vegetables. That's a typical example. Uh, but everyone wants to know what, what the footprint of what they have in their plates is going to affect the entire uh, equation here. And I think the final one um, has to do with compliance. 
what we see a lot of are companies to be suppliers to be in, in the need for ensuring compliance. By the way, I, I personally think that compliance has become part of the trade war between countries, unfortunately. But nevertheless, uh, suppliers and manufacturers have to comply with that. And they have to make sure that whatever they provide has to comply with existing rules. I think you're absolutely spot on, Christoph. It's a really interesting point you make there about, about compliance and a, and a trade war. Perhaps that's a, an issue for another podcast. As you said, an awful lot's changed in the last 18 months, nearly two years. So are these trends any different from, from before the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, do you think? Well, I think the, the, you know, the fundamental ways, and that goes for any uh, uh, sector in the industry, actually. I think companies now realise that business continuity can only be ensured by ensuring, by uh, making sure that they have the, the right solutions, the right collaborative solutions. So in a world where travel restrictions are probably going to last for a few more years, and you know, unfortunately, uh, the last events over the past few hours, what's happening in, in Eastern Europe right now is also uh, reinforces that, that feeling that travel restrictions are, are going to be here to stay. So I think that the fundamental change between now and before, you know, before being 24 months ago, roughly, is that people have realized that ensuring the business continuity is something that is only going to happen if they have a way to collaborate remotely and if they have a way to keep working in front of their computer instead of being uh, physically elsewhere. So, so, and, and, and that has, you know, that has really become something that is quite key. People before were seeing that, I think, as a nice to have. Now it has become a must have. That's the fundamental change. Again, I think you're absolutely, absolutely right there. I think I know what your answer is going to be to this next question, but I'd be very interested to hear your thoughts regardless. Do you see eco-friendly environmental stability concerns influencing food product development going forwards as well? Yes, definitely. You know, we, the, the, the European Union has passed a few laws uh, that, that are coming into effect next year, this year and next year about uh, the, uh, it's, it's, it's what we, what has been called the anti-waste uh, regulation. Um, and that forces suppliers uh, to ensure that they display very accurately the eco score of their products. So the highest the score, the more impactful the product has on the environment. So that, that has become a real uh, obligation now from suppliers. And that's on the one hand, uh, that's, you know, uh, driven by law. But consumers have become equally more and more cognition to that. And, and they want to know, not only the young generation, by the way, also my generation, which I would <laughs> call the, old, the, the older generation, um, has become more aware of how impactful our consumer habits have on the environment, and we want to know. We want to know so that we are able to shift our behavior as a consumer. I'm sure you do yourself a disservice, Christoph. I'm sure you're not in the uh, in the older generation. Um, as a leader in the luxury industry, as, as Centric Software is, um, obviously you deal with plenty of luxury brands, be them in the food sector and elsewhere. Do you think there are similarities across all those luxury sectors, whether that be food, clothing, jewelry, for example? Do you think there, there are similarities from a product development perspective? I'm glad you're asking that question. Actually, 
we are seeing a lot of similarities, uh, unexpected ones, but you know, when you think about it, it only makes sense. So in, in the luxury industry, which is the industry we come from, you, you have to deal with a lot of different products and, and, and a lot of variety and a lot of variations. And you really have to make a lot of decisions to please uh, the consumer. And in order to make those decisions, you need to have a lot of KPIs at the planning process and at the, you know, during the, the product development process as well. So those KPIs are mostly, where mostly, uh, mostly have to do, sorry, with cost and with material availability. So a typical example of that would be the ability to manufacture a jacket using the right type of material, that material being, for example, organic cotton. And the usage of that organic cotton could be coming from a supplier in Turkey or a supplier in India. And that, that is very different without, go, without going into the details. Now, in, in the food and beverage industry, uh, that's pretty much the same story. You have to incorporate in your product development process eco-sustainability KPIs. So not only cost-related KPIs, but eco-sustainability KPIs so that you can actually decide based on those KPIs if the product you are looking at is uh, ready to be launched or not. So I think that the major similarity that we are seeing now is that companies were mostly interested in cost-related KPIs before. Now they're really looking at eco-sustainable KPIs, which again uh, has a, a very significant impact on the viability of the product they're about to launch. That, that, that's you know that's the there, there are multiple other common trends. I could tell you about supplier collaboration. I could tell you about uh, the ability to manage uh, product specification in a very detailed way according to regulations and and all that that we are talking about before. But I think from an eco sustainability standpoint, that's really you know what we are talking about here. I think that's really interesting. I think it just goes to show that, I mean, the food industry can, I think, be so vast and so so focused that we forget that there are so many similarities that, that we share with, with other sectors um, outside of our own industry too. So it's so really interesting to hear about that. I know that one of your flagship offerings at Centric Software is the Product Lifecycle Management PLM platform. Could you just tell us what is the PLM platform and what do you think customers are mostly looking for when they implement a PLM solution? Certainly. Well, Simply said, product lifecycle management platform, a PLM, is something that is a solution that is going to enable users to collaborate uh, holistically and globally uh, you know, during the product development process. That product development process, by the way, goes from the planning phase down to the quality, uh, you know, going through product, the, the, the different implication of suppliers, the compliance to regulation. So the PLM solution will really consolidate all the product-related information as they relate to product development. Companies today uh, are looking for a solution that is completely web-enabled, so they can access their users, can access the solution from wherever they are in the world whether it is from their laptop, whether it is from their phone, uh, smartphone, or whether it is from a tablet. And they want to be able to do that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, remotely from any location without any, uh, you know, hassle of, uh, you know, due to infrastructure. So you have to have a completely web-oriented solution. And from an IT perspective, of course, you want that solution to be easy to deploy, easy to implement, and highly personalized to serve habits and usage of each user. And just finally, Christoph, what advice would you give a company looking for a PLM solution? 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's, you know, we, we are obviously biased, right? I mean, uh, as, as a PLM provider uh, and as the leading PLM provider, we could only give them the advice of looking at Centric. But, you know, m- more specifically, I think what uh, I would be looking at if I was to select a PLM solution would be three things. One, how easy is the solution to use for, for the regular user? And what's going to be the learning curve? Number two, how easy is it to deploy from an IT perspective? Does that require a lot of infrastructure? Does that require a lot of manpower? Or is it you know, relatively uh, simple to do? And the last thing really would be how personalized that solution can be for the average user. Because you know, we, we have a new generation coming up today. And those users are not, in a, you know, are, are not ready to make a lot of compromise. So the solution has to be ready to use right away without a lot of training, and it has to be very fit to the needs of the users. So my only advice for companies looking for a PLM solution is to make no com- is not to make any compromise, to really look, I mean, to really conduct, conduct a due diligence that is very thorough, look at references, uh, talk to people who have been using the solution short term for a long time, who've been going through the solution with multiple years, because a demonstration of, of such a software solution can look like any other. If you look deeper inside, there are fundamental differences. So the due diligence, as always, is key. And that's the best advice I could give to anyone looking for a PLM solution. I think that's really great advice. Christoph. thank you so much for joining me today and for offering some really interesting insight into this sector and into what Suntrick Software can offer for manufacturers operating in what is a very exciting space. Thank you so much. Thank you, Josh. Have a good day. Thank you very much. Well, now it's time to hear from another player within the luxury product sector as I speak to Paul Morris from luxury chocolate brand Luca. Well, hello, listeners. I'm delighted to be joined by Paul Morris, who is European sales manager at Luca Chocolates. Paul, thank you so much for joining me this morning. You're very welcome. Morning, Josh. Morning, everyone. Good morning. Well, I guess, Paul, a, a great place to start would be just asking what we've asked our other guests and what makes a product premium? I think it's a whole host of things. Ultimately, I think it how it makes a consumer feel. And that can be demonstrated in lots of ways. So first of all, quality ingredients, great flavor, delivering a, a, an eating experience, which is above and beyond what they would get from a standard product. It could also be something that's extremely innovative. So different flavor profiles, experimental flavors, or different and unusual ingredients that they're not used to seeing. And also these days as well, it leads in and it ties in closely with sustainability and traceability, which ties into that how it's making us feel when we purchase that, this whole experience we have when we purchase something what we consider premium. I guess a good way to follow that up is what does a consumer expect when they pay that little bit more for a premium product? I think a whole host of things it could be conceived as premium and can be conceived of an expectation, but it's something that's different from the norm, whether that is better quality ingredients, which results in a better flavor, a better experience when you eat it, or that could be a purpose behind the product that ties into that rhetoric around sustainability and transparency, allowing people to see the people who've been involved in creating that product or the ingredients that go into that product. Or it could be all around experiencing more. It could be that the product is perceived as healthy. So that could be better for our own personal health. It could also be better for the planet's health. 
or there could be some additional function to that product. So we're in the world of functional foods, whether that's with additional protein, alternate sugars, but all feeds into the way it makes us feel as consumers. And that's why we like to pay more for getting what we perceive as a better quality product. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that experience and that feel is, is so important. And you do want to feel like you are getting value for your money, despite paying perhaps a little bit more than, than some other products. I know you don't retail directly, but do, do you think that budget products are a competitor for premium and luxury brands? Or do you see them as a completely different sector altogether? I think they're an entirely different space. So they are a completely different sector and they appear, appeal to a different consumer. And, and for diff- different needs as well. So people might grab a cheap candy bar um, for different occasions during the day. It might just be that they just need some quick fuel because they're hungry. I think when we talk about premium products, they're, they're different formats, they're different packaging, and they're eaten at a completely different occasion. No, I think you're, you're absolutely right. One trend that we've seen at New Food over the last sort of year, couple of years, and especially since the onset of the pandemic, is the idea of, of, of buying less but buying better. We spoke to a whiskey distillery earlier, and um, that certainly goes for the alcohol sector. Do you think that more chocolate brands are going to attempt to transition towards premium, the premium end of the market in the near future to try and catch that, that trend? Yeah, really interesting question. And absolutely, I do. And I think there's there's more than a passing connection with alcoholic drinks. And that was great that you brought up whiskey. That is something they've done very well. As, as we're all more health conscious, we're not drinking as much alcohol and we're not perhaps eating as much chocolate. So we want to make better choices when we make those purchasing decisions. And in doing that, we're going to pay a little bit more, but we expect more as well. So we expect the full sort of delivery of that experience from a product. So that could be beautiful packaging, incredible flavor, but also a story linked to that product as well. We want to know what what the brand stands for, what the supply chain, the value chain looks like. So it really is about going much deeper and, and, and this mindless consumerism of just grabbing whether it was a cheap glass of whiskey or a cheap candy bar is completely changing. We are consuming less but much higher quality and much more consciously. I think you're absolutely right, Point. There's a couple of things you said there that are really interesting that I'd like to pick up on. The first thing around packaging, I suppose this question's a little bit chicken and egg, but do you think that consumers expect a certain level of packaging that comes with an increased price point, or does the fact that as a retailer and as a manufacturer, you have to include better quality of packaging does that increase the price it's really interesting because this ties in really well to the whole waste free plastic free debate and i think packaging has changed a lot over the past couple of years so i think first of all the conscious consumer who's looking to purchase a premium product now will expect that packaging to be sustainable and they they don't like over packaged goods but they do expect it to still have a premium feel about it. Um, so, so you know, cheap flow wrap products that we've seen for years in confectionery now, I think manufacturers are having to be a lot more creative about how they package products and then how they tell their brand story on that packaging. Is creating more sustainable packaging more expensive for manufacturers like yourself? 
Yes, it is because of that development process in in taking what was a packaging solution which could have worked for many years and then developing that in something sustainable. Quite often the sustainable solution doesn't have an increased cost, but the cost is in developing that solution and then transitioning over to it. Um, And I think brands and, and, and companies have got to work out how they leverage that cost is that represented in the product for the next 10 years to come as a unit cost or is that just a business expense that we all have to take on board these days and it's just a cost of doing business in this new post-covid world well that was actually what i was about to ask you on the back of that do do you think consumers are going to be prepared to pay a little bit more for a product but knowing that the way that it's manufactured and the packaging that it's wrapped in is better for the planet and better for the environment? Or do you think that ultimately price is king and the extra 50p, the extra 40p will make all the difference? I think consumers understand now that, that those, those, those premium ingredients and, and the products do cost more. And I think they understand as well that, that cheap products somewhere along that supply chain, someone's not been paid fairly for the work they've done. So I think as, as consumers, we, we, we do expect to pay more and by and large, we are happy to pay more if we're still getting that experience from the product and we feel that we're getting value. Absolutely, Paul. I just want to revert back to something you said right at the start of our conversation, which was around traceability. It's an increasingly important issue within the food sector. And I know that's something that Luca cares about quite deeply. Do you think that consumers expect a certain level of traceability with that increased price for a premium product? Do they want to know where in the world exactly their products from, even down to the farm and the farmer that, that manufactured the ingredients? Absolutely, and I think that's becoming more prevalent all the time. We're moving out of an age now where consumers were happy with a third-party certification to say, you know, th- this brand cares. Now, in it, with lots of information available on social media, Consumers do want to go deeper. They want to have a connection to a brand. And in doing that, they want to know what that brand stands for, what's the purpose, but also how they treat everyone in their supply chain. So sustainability, transparency, they expect to be able to to go deeper and it's multi-level. So you can start to tell that story on pack, but that message then has to be reinforced with all your digital channels to allow those, those those brand consumers who are really passionate about your brand to go much deeper and really get a deep understanding of where the product comes from, who are the people that grow it, how are they treated, what is their life like? And particularly with chocolate, that ties into things like Phenodaroma, a certification of cacao that's all around quality. It ties into single origin, single region, and then even single farm, single estate cocos, which allow brands to tell the story of a single farm, a single region, or even a single family that's involved in the production of their products. Do you think that's the way that the the chocolate market is going? Obviously, single estate coffee has been around for some time. Clearly, single malt whiskey has been around for for, for centuries. Do you think that single estate, even single farm chocolate is a growing trend? Yes, I do. And I think it's part of that move away from looking at cocoa as a basic commodity and allowing consumers to see the difference in different cocos from around the world, but also in tasting those interesting and exciting flavours from different regions 
um, and different farms, just like you described, just like we've done in coffee. I think that that, that Coco can learn a lot from coffee and is doing a lot is learning a lot from coffee, particularly the way coffee has premiumized itself and appeals to consumers in different ways. You know, you can still go out and get a cup of instant coffee for 50p, but most of us choose not to. And that was what I was about to ask. In the same way that we discussed sustainable packaging and the increased cost that comes with that, do you think that in the future we, we, we won't be seeing sort of 20p, 30p large chocolate bars but because people have just stopped buying that cheap, quick chocolate and instead are just buying a more expensive premium product now and again? Do you see that as a reality or do you think there'll always be a space for the cheap budget option? That's that's a really good question. I hope that we're going to see an end to that because I would really like to see more money enter the value chain and cocoa farmers around the world paid more fairly for what they do. So do I think that will happen? I think it's starting to happen, but it's happening very slowly. I think we may see some of the cheaper confectionery move away from from being real chocolate and we'll see things like chocolate flavored confectionery just we get a better understanding of the cocoa supply chain you know cocoa is a very complex uh, crop to grow it's grown generally by smallholder farmers all around the world there's lots of challenges around things like farmer welfare so so i really hope that happens and i believe it is starting to happen the question is will we see it in sort of my time working i'm not sure to be honest I think you're absolutely right. And like you say, I think anything that, that, that can send value further down the chain is a good thing. Um, just just to, to finish up, Paul, a question that I asked our other guests as well. Does, when it comes to price of premium products, does the price make a product premium? Or is the price point reflected in the work that's gone into that product to make it premium if that makes sense and that's another chicken and egg question but can you make a product premium just by raising the price by a couple of pounds or do you think that there needs to be more proof and more substance there for a consumer to, to, to buy it and to buy into the, that product i think this comes back to how a product makes us feel and i think there's certainly examples of that in the market now and a lot of these products also you know, they might have a bit of greenwashing. They have a kind of very high-level sustainability story around them. But when you start scratching away at the surface, you realise that there's nothing underneath. I think consumers are pretty good at spotting those now. And I think that any brand that tries that strategy is not going to have much longevity in the market. I think that consumers really want to go deep in understanding what a brand stands for. And in doing that, they will understand where the cost in the product is and they'll feel very happy about paying that additional cost. Paul, thank you so much for some really insightful analysis there. Thank you so much for sharing your morning with me. Yeah, sounds like you're doing some great work at Luca and um, hopefully look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thanks, Josh. An absolute pleasure. I thought Paul was brilliant. Beth, I thought we made some really, really great points. In particular, I found the discussion around traceability really, really interesting. Mm. It's not something that struck me, first of all, when I was preparing for this um, this podcast. When you think premium, you think nice packaging, you think obviously a nice product, good tasting product. Don't think about the things that come with it. And he's once he said it, I, I kind of had a light bulb moment. It was like, no, you're absolutely right. Consumers expect a certain amount of traceability when they're paying a bit more. He mentioned single estate as a trend, and and that's something we're seeing across multiple sectors. 
we have mentioned there, single malt whiskey has been going for centuries. But single estate coffee is a real, real trend now. Consumers want to know where exactly where their coffee came from. The same goes for chocolate. If you're paying a little bit more for a chocolate bar, you expect to know where that chocolate originated from. And I think something you said that really struck me was basically cheap products mean that someone's not been paid somewhere. And that is quite sad. Ooh, that's controversial. A... Controversial. Mm. It did jump leap out at me that whether that's true or not, I don't know. But I think it feeds into. Sorry, go on, Beth. I was, I was going to say, what would it be, Josh? About you know your your uh, skepticism and uh, negativity. This podcast, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Always here to bring the mood down. <laughs> I do think it feeds into that debate of whether consumers will pay more though for that little bit of. Not necessarily luxury, but also will they pay more for sustainability? Will they pay more for traceability? And perhaps that's going to be the future luxury product. Perhaps it's not going to be about really luxurious milky chocolate, but it's going to be, okay, the product's more or less similar, but if you pay an extra quid, we can tell you where the cocoa's from. We can assure you that everyone's been looked after in the supply chain. Mm. I don't know, maybe that's where it's going. Yeah, I mean, uh, we've brought this up numerous times, though. It's um, It's like cost so even paul said about it you know budget is a different category to premium there's two markets and you know some not everyone can afford to pay the extra like people look for savings everywhere so it will it's it's a really difficult one because it's like obviously you want to pay for things that you know products are that are good for the planet and and good for the people in the supply chain but it's just it's difficult, really, because not everyone can afford premium products. I suppose that when, if, you know, we start buying, well, demanding more from the products within the supply chain, we might see those kind of things come into to play um, more regularly. I think what else was interesting that Paul said was that budget products have their own occasions. And I, I, that I totally, that totally resonated with me because it's like, yeah, you do sometimes just be like, oh, I just fancy a, you know, a, a just a, a cheap chocolate bar and you just kind of, you know, what he was saying about a snack for on the go and just grab kind of, you know, whatever is like the, the sort of, you know, the one pound bar or anything. So I thought that was really interesting. And I don't think budget brands are going anywhere. No, I don't think they are. I mean, just to add a further example, like throughout lockdown, I developed a penchant for baking chocolate brownies. And for that, you don't really want to be paying three, four pounds per big bar of chocolate because you have to use an alarming amount of chocolate and a chocolate brownie. Um, <laughs> didn't quite meant- realise it was as bad for you as it was. I've made chocolate brownies with sweet potatoes. Oh, the jury's very much out on the sounds <laughs> of that, Beth. I'm not I'm, sure I'm I, interested. They were they were actually pretty good. I learnt my lesson though. Soften the the potatoes before you you, you try whisk them into the um <laughs> into the mixture. <laughs> it was very well, much you, a trial and error process. Have some. We spoke about recording this podcast together. Now we're living nearby, so you, you can have a batch ready for me, Nick, when I uh, oh, venture down oh, the road. I thought you were going to say you were going to make some for me then. Oh well, it's not my thing, is it? You've just said you, you you're the expert. Yeah, but you're the one making all the brownies. I barely make brownies. Well, we compare then. I guarantee you that the one that's worse for you will be better for you because that's always well, the The thing is, though, Josh, who's going to win in this? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> me, because I'll get the better brownies. <laughs> 
This is very true. This is very true. <laughs> okay, so another thing that Paul mentioned, I think actually, no, Cara mentioned it as well, was packaging and, you know, what kind of packaging, what it, what it does and, and also the, the, the story it tells. I mean, what makes you pick up a product, Josh? I'm really interested to know this. Yeah, I was thinking about this um, after I conducted both interviews. I don't think there's a definitive sort of set of criteria I've got the sustainability aspect really appealed to me and I don't think I even consciously do it but you know if you're in the chocolate aisle for example and some bars of chocolate are wrapped in beautiful paper with a nice pattern like an embossed label it feels nice to the touch and you think oh this is a proper bar of chocolate and Mm. maybe the fact that it's wrapped in paper appeals to me I think oh yeah that's like I don't think I stand there in the aisle in, in the supermarket and go oh I will choose this chocolate bar because it's paper like I don't think that thought process happens cognitively but perhaps it goes on subconsciously Mm. i think what he's what paul said about plastic and consumers moving away from plastic i think it's massive yeah i think all chocolate bars any area of the market are going to have to do that soon oh totally absolutely i mean i use coffee as an example always go for the bag of coffee beans which is in like a nice paper kind of bag you know the feel i mean like the paper feel like it feels nice to the touch sort of the shiny plastic bags i i usually swerve yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I also want to bring up the expression that you loved during this, well, these interviews. You know what I'm going to say, right? Yeah, I do, yeah, because you've been ripping me for it all week. <laughs> Chicken and egg. <laughs> right, so it's not quite as bad as in moderation, which we read in every single issue of New Food, but oh, I, only on. have, I have about 10 stock phrases, as you all know, Beth, and I just cycle through them, so... Chicken eggs back in the queue. We won't see that again until next year. Maybe I'll put it in the next issue. Yeah, Chicken do it. Eggs. Let's get in there. Well, the listeners perhaps can play New Food Bingo. Get that on your cards. Yeah, absolutely. Issue five. Have a yeah. look. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, we I wanted to get that in before we, we came to a close today. Yeah, I, um, I thought you would. Yeah, yeah. You know, cause <laughs> <laughs> I have to, I have to be mean. <laughs> <laughs> I have to have at least one dig per podcast. <laughs> yeah, you know, it makes it makes me happy. But yes, but that is unfortunately all we have time for. But thanks once again uh, to you, our listeners, for tuning in. And we'll be back soon. But if you are struggling to get your new food fix before then, you can view the wonders of Josh and Beth every Friday uh, when we publish our 60 second roundup of the week's news. So do keep a look out for that. I said that very strangely. Oh no, it's the it's the curse of the, the ending. It wouldn't be an EFID podcast <laughs> if we didn't mangle the ending, would it? <laughs> okay. I think it really is time to wrap things up. Um, this episode of Food to Go has been brought to you by Centric Software. You can catch more of me, Josh, and our newest co-host, Abby, on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or of course via the New Food website. But until next time, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. <laughs>